Our Father, we do indeed need you. And so we come before you, Lord, and we ask that by your Spirit you would cause Christ to reign in our hearts through the Word. Lord, we want Jesus to be king here. And so we pray that you would help us to identify the false gods that we may be worshiping, to discern where the adornments of the culture are reflecting idolatry in our lives and to rid ourselves of those things. Lord, help us to bury those idols. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hear the promises, to understand their profound and unsearchable interconnectedness. And we pray, Lord, that you would do such a work in our hearts that we would be what your word says we are. Those who bear your image, those who are not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, those who will be raised from the dead. Lord, make us what your word says we are, a kingdom of priests, a chosen people. And we pray that you would do all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 35. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, it's Easter. And you're going to preach the next text in Genesis? What are you trying to prove, Hamilton? Well, I'll tell you what I'm trying to prove. I'm trying to prove that Christ is Lord here. That's what I'm trying to prove. And the way that Christ reigns in the church is through the word, okay? And so, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, playful here, but I'm telling you what I believe to be truth, okay? Here's the truth. The Bible, nowhere in the Bible is one particular Sunday in the spring of the year marked out as the day on which we celebrate the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the Lord's Day, which comes weekly. So we celebrate the resurrection every week. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. No doubt. He is risen. And Okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'm wearing a suit today. I usually don't wear a suit. We're going to have a big feast today. That's great. You know, these are fun things that we can, we can sort of decorate the calendar with. I don't think they do any harm. If I thought they did harm, I would actually oppose them. But I want Christ to reign in the church, and so I don't want to be just picking texts willy-nilly according to what I think might be good for you to hear or because of what the calendar dictates. So we're, we're just going to plow right through the scriptures together. That's, that's the plan. That's the program. We don't want to require people to do things the Bible doesn't teach, which is why when a certain Wednesday rolls around, 
at the beginning of a season that some people call Lent, we don't celebrate Ash Wednesday and put little black crosses on people's foreheads because you don't find anything about that in the Bible. Nor does the Bible say that you ought to celebrate a season where you didn't. The Bible doesn't teach those things that you ought to celebrate Lent. I mean, look, if you find that helpful, have at it, okay? But I'm not going to preach it from the pulpit and bind your conscience to obey it when the scriptures don't require it. That, that's not going to be our, our policy here. And what we're going to do is preach the word because we think that the word is what God's people need. And here's what we find when we preach the word. I submit to you that if you look carefully at Genesis 35 with me and you consider the, the heart of the meaning of this text, you will come away with the impression this text is about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This text is fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So as we approach Genesis chapter 35, let me just give us some some orienting comments about what we're going to find in this passage. And then I want to set this passage in the broader context of the book of Genesis. So in this passage, we're going to see four burials in this passage. Four funerals, if you will. And I submit to you that every one of those funerals is not an end in itself, but in each case, those funerals are put in this book by Moses to point forward to the life that is going to come through that death. And thus, I have entitled this message, uh, Death Gives Way to Life because of these four funerals. We're going to see the deaths of the false gods, the death of Rebecca, Jacob's mother, her nurse, the death of Rebecca's nurse. We're going to see the death of Rachel, and then we're going to see the death of Isaac. We'll also see the birth of Jacob's youngest son, and that birth is bound up with death. And that birth is profoundly significant, as we'll see when we get to that part of the passage. We'll also see the offense of Jacob's eldest son and the offense of Reuben. If you've been reading the passage this week, you know what Reuben is going to do. We'll see it in just a few moments. The offense of Reuben is a kind of a death of the firstborn because of the way that it disqualifies him. So uh, with that sort of preview of, of Genesis 35, um, let, me, let me try to orient us to where this chapter sits in the book of Genesis. And the first thing I want to say about it is that Genesis 35 does not contain the information that it contains merely because of chronological considerations. In other words, it's not that Moses is just saying to us as he, as he presents us with the material of Genesis, this happened, and then this other thing happened, and then this third thing happened, and those were all in a sequence. And the reason I say that in particular is because at the end of this passage, look at verse 28. You, you read there in Genesis 35, 28, the days of Isaac were 180 years. And from information that we get elsewhere in Genesis, we know that Isaac was 40 when he got married, and then he was 60 when Jacob and Esau were born. And then we're also told, for instance, that Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And then, then at a certain point when Joseph was about 30, he was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And at that point, uh, Joseph had predicted 14 years of, of, of first plenty, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then when his brothers come down to Egypt, 
he says to them, there are five more years of famine. And, and that means that at that point, Joseph's about 39, because 30 plus 14 is going to make 44, and he's got five more years. So he's about 39. You put all these numbers together, and, and here are some of the things that we come out with. If, if uh, Jacob was born when Isaac was 60, and then Jake, Isaac dies at 180, this means that Jacob is 120 when his father dies. From other information in the book, we know that Jacob was 91 when Joseph was born. And, and if you subtract, um, uh, we, we, we can, I, could, I could give you the calculations for this. This also means 91 plus 17, Jacob, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery at 17 years of age. 91 plus 17, that means Jacob is 108 when Joseph is sold into slavery, which means that, that there are 12 years until Isaac's death. Okay, so what I'm telling you is the events that we're going to read about in Genesis 37, when Joseph is sold into slavery, those events happened 12 years before Isaac's death in 3528. You tracking with me here? Okay, so the point is um, by the time that Isaac dies, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery 12 years before. Okay, that, that's, that's the gist of it, which means that this is not a strictly chronological account. So why has Moses arranged this material the way that he has? Well, there, there are a lot of things that we could say about that. And if you'll come back, uh, not next week, Denny's preaching next week, the week after that, which come next week, but uh, if you come back in two weeks, um, we, in Genesis 36, you know, if you look at Genesis 36, you've got this genealogy of Esau. And um, we'll look at that genealogy, but I also want to consider with you uh, how the whole book of Genesis is put together. So I'm going to say more about how the whole book of Genesis is put together then. But here today, what I want to say is there is a lot in Genesis 35 that, that matches up with both Genesis 12 and Genesis 25. And, and you'll see how all this lays out if you come in two weeks. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And he tells Abraham, this man who has no children whose wife is barren, he tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that promise to make Abraham into a great nation is, is flowing out of what God said to the man and the woman back in, or to the serpent actually, about the man and the woman in Genesis 3.15 when he said, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Now, in order to understand how Genesis 35 is about resurrection, you need to see the connection between the birth of children and new life out of death. So consider with me again, some of you have been here, we've been over this, but consider with me again the, the, the sort of inner logic, the flow of thought moving from Genesis 2 into Genesis 3. So Genesis 2, 17, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. They eat of the tree. They hear God coming. They have no reason to expect anything but death, which is why they hide. They flee. And then God calls them out. And only when God speaks is there any hope of life. And what God says to the serpent after he curses him is, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your seed and her seed. And when they hear those words, what they hear is, we're not going to die. He is going to give us children. And somehow, one of those, one of those male children, a male seed of the woman, is going to bruise the head of the serpent, which is a lot more likely to be a mortal wound than a heel wound is going to be. And so, into the face of certain death, God throws the promise of a child to be born, the promise of the seed of the woman. And then the reason for this genealogy in Genesis 5 and the reason for the genealogy in Genesis 11 is because they are assiduously tracking the line of descent of the seed of the woman down to Abraham. And then to this man who can't have children, God says, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you seed. And so again, it's, it's as though Abraham, his family line is dead and cut off. But God promises life. And eventually, in the book of Genesis, Isaac is born to barren Sarah. And then you keep going and you read that Rebekah, like Sarah, is barren. She can't have children. And then by God's grace, by, God, by the power that raises the dead... Jacob and Esau are born. And then you also read about Rachel, Jacob's wife, that she was barren. And again, by the power of the one who calls what does not exist, Romans 4, into existence and gives life to the dead, God grants Rachel conception and Joseph is born into the world. And then again, we'll see Rachel conceive and bear children here in Genesis 35. So the point I'm making here is that in the book of Genesis, the very existence of the hope of the seed of the woman and the very existence of the line of descent and the children born to these barren women, that points to the promise of the resurrection of the dead. Because what God has done is give life to corpses, that was a dead womb in Sarah's belly, and God gave it life, brought life out of that death. It was a dead womb in Rebekah's belly, and God gave life. Same for Rachel. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 35. Um, let me first draw your attention to the sort of boundary statements around the first unit of the text. And, and again... As you read the Bible, particularly as you read the narratives in the Bible, I would encourage you to have your ears opened and be listening for repeated words and phrases like these. Look at, look at verse 1 of Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now drop your eyes down to verse 6. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. You see all the repetitions, the mention of Bethel, the building of an altar, God revealing himself or appearing to Jacob when he fled from his brother. All of those repetitions mark out for us verses 1 through 7 as our first unit in this passage. So as we work our way through it, this is going to be the first, the first portion of the text that we treat. And there is, there is a kind of death and resurrection in this passage. 
So verse 1, God said to Jacob, and you'll remember last week if you were here that I said in Genesis 34, it's a pretty bleak chapter. Uh, This man Jacob, he has not protected his daughter Dinah, and so she is sexually assaulted. And then he does not restrain his sons, and so his sons, Simeon and Levi, deceive the inhabitants of the city of Shechem. And then when those men are in pain from having submitted themselves to circumcision, Simeon and Levi go through, and they don't just kill the rapist and his father, they kill all the men of the city. And then they don't just commit this atrocity by murdering all these people, they then plunder all of their wealth. And, and so it, you know, it looks like the tribes of Israel have just participated in a war crime. It's an, it's an awful, bleak chapter. But look at the mercy in Genesis 35.1. God said to Jacob. You know, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe, maybe you haven't committed a war crime. Maybe you haven't carried out an atrocity on a whole city of people. But if you're honest with yourself, that prayer that Denny prayed earlier resonates with you. You can barely open your eyes without falling into some some one of the seven deadly sins, whether it be lust or greed or pride or anger or whatever, gluttony. These things, they, they, they are all around us and they are all through us. And the mercy comes when God speaks into your life. When you hear the word of God, and, and suddenly you realize, I am guilty before a holy God, but that holy God has not come in judgment to crush and condemn and, and kill me. He has come to reveal himself to me to obliterate the idols, which is what happens here. Look at, look at let's continue in the passage. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel. And if you've been here as we've worked through Genesis, you know that when Jacob first fled from Esau, he made his way to Bethel, and there God appeared to him, and he makes this vow to the Lord. If you bring me back safely, I will worship you here. And, and now God is essentially saying to Jacob, make good on your vow. You made a promise to me, follow through on it. Maybe you read the book Unbroken, and there's that great story of Louis Zamperini, who was, he was out on on that life raft in the Pacific Ocean for almost 50 days. And, and he's lying there one day, and he's parched with thirst, and he's about, to, he's about to die of thirst, and he prays, if you save me, I will serve you forever. And it begins to rain. And it's life-giving rain that, that keeps him alive in his, in his near-death thirst. And then, after the war... He's at a Billy Graham crusade, and he's about to storm out because he's so mad at at the gospel that he's just heard. He's so indignant that that man would call him a sinner and challenge him to give his life for Christ. And he gets up to storm out, and he has a flashback, and he feels raindrops, and he remembers his promise. And, And the Lord brings him to faith mercifully. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother. And then verse two, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, this is the kind of leadership that Jacob should have been engaging in all along. So 
So we've been seeing Jacob as a poor example. Here he's a good example. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Where did these foreign gods come from? Well, you, you may remember all the way back in chapters 30 and 31 when they fled from Laban. You remember what Rachel did? Rachel stole her father's household gods. Maybe, maybe those are still around. And, and perhaps also they've just plundered Shechem and, and they very well... I mean, they've probably plundered a lot of little figurines and, and little objects of gold or silver or other precious metal or, or, or gemstones or whatever, these beautiful little objects that are used in these pagan, idolatrous, wicked acts of worship. And Jacob says, put all that stuff away. And brothers who are husbands and fathers in the room, this is the way we need to lead our homes. We need to say to our families... We are not going to have idolatry here. we, we got to put all that stuff away. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. You know, in the, in the, in the flow of thought here, um, the, the, way, the way the Bible's logic work, works goes like this. Sin makes us unclean and death results from sin. So if you come into contact with death... You are unclean because you've come into contact with the outworking of sin. And so this is, this is going to inform not just what we're seeing here in Genesis, but also the whole book of Leviticus and a lot of the stuff in Numbers and Exodus as well. And these people have just slaughtered the whole city of Shechem. And, and then they plundered all those dead bodies that were there in the city of Shechem. And so they need to purify themselves. It's probably going to involve the kinds of of sacrificial uh, offerings and then the ritual washings that we're going to eventually read about over in the book of Leviticus, early anticipations of those things. So they need to put away the foreign gods, they need to purify themselves, and they need to change their garments. And we'll see what that entails more in just a second. But this is not just abstention from the world and its things. This is, this is set yourself apart from the world, and devote yourself to the Lord. Okay, so we don't, we don't want to be people who, who just say, well, that food tastes good, but I don't want to eat that food because it's enjoyable. Why? Well, it's just not good for me to enjoy things. No, no, that's the wrong way to approach this. If you're going to cut yourself off for something, it needs to be because it's idolatrous and so that you can devote yourself to the Lord. Okay, so look at what they do here in verse 3. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You may remember back in 2815 when God first saw, appeared to Jacob at Bethel. He said to him, I will be with you. So Jacob is saying, he's been with me. He kept his part of the bargain. He preserved me alive. He brought me back in peace. He's been with me. Verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. I think that's probably part of this whole bit about change your garments. I suspect that not only the rings in their ears, but in some manner, some degree, their clothing participated in the culture such that if you looked at the idolaters... And then you looked at the Israelites, the people of Jacob, 
you could say, well, they kind of look like the same people. And, and in, maybe this was because, you know, the Israelites have just plundered Shechem, and they find all these earrings, and they pop them in their ears, and they find all these nice uh, idolatrously tainted uh, ways of dressing, and they're like, hey, I would look good in that. And so they, they're, they're taking on the ways of the world. And the ways of the world are connected to the worship of the world. The idolatrous, sinful, robbing God of honor ways of worship. And, and worshiping things that are not worthy of worship. So I would encourage you to look at your life. And to ask yourself, where am I not worshiping God? Where am I looking for things that are not God to do for me what only God can do for me. And then look at the way that you dress. Look at your, your patterns and your habits and, and take a careful look and say, am I living like an idolater? I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be committing idolatry, but am I living like an idolater? Am I dressing like an idolater? Do I, do I have habits of life or ways of thinking or, or usual manners of conduct just the general way that I go about my life that somebody would look at and say, well, that's no different from these people that, that worship their own health or worship their money or think that the government is going to save them. or that, That's no different from the idolaters. And then whatever you find in your life that's like that, you need to do what happens next. Look at, look at verse 4 again. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and then the ESV renders this. This is a, a very good literal translation. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. The NIV renders this in a way that's more interpretive. And I, I like, I mean, I think the interpretation is true. It says, Jacob buried them. You hear that? What they're saying is, those things are dead. Those things are dead to us, and we are dead to them. So they're going to die to the idols, and the idols are going to die to them that they might live to God. That's what's happening here. And, and this is, again, this burial is about resurrection unto life. The burial of these idols is about new life devoted to God. And then look at the outworking of this, verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So, you know, in chapter 34, they've just slaughtered the city of Shechem. And the city of Shechem is probably in league with surrounding cities. And so their covenantal obligations to Shechem would require them to avenge themselves upon the sons of Jacob. But God is with Jacob. And the only reason those cities don't come out to war against Jacob and his sons is because the terror of God falls upon them. So these people, they, they put away their idols. They bury the dead things that they formerly worshipped. They devote themselves to living for God, and then God protects them is what happens. Verse 6, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar. And this is the first time that Jacob has done this. In the, in the narrative of Genesis, he has not been build, he's not been going about building altars. He's been going about with a wife who has her father's household gods. And, and so this is a decisive turn. This is a, a step forward in the sanctification of the patriarch Jacob. 
And, and the language here, when it says, there he built an altar, this is ex- it's worded exactly the same way it's worded when we read of Abraham building an altar and Isaac building an altar. So at last, Jacob is walking in the footsteps of his father and his father's father in worshiping the Lord. There he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. And, and the significance of this, the, the name Bethel, Beit El, is house of God. But the significance of putting El on the front, it's, it's as though he's saying God of Bethel. And if you remember back in Genesis 28, when we were in that passage, there was all this emphasis upon the place. You know, Jacob, God appears to him and God says to Jacob, Jacob, I will be with you. And it's like Jacob can't see how significant it is that God is saying, I'm going to be with you. Jacob gets fixated on the place. And he says, how awesome is this place? Surely God is in this place and I'll set up a pillar in this place. And there's all this focus on the place. And and now it's like Jacob gets it. It, He gets it that it's not the place, it's the God. It's, It's not the location, it's that God is with him. And so... It's not just Bethel now, it's El Bethel, the God of Bethel. Because there, verse 7 goes on to say, God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Okay, so that's our our first unit of text. And I want to summarize the application of that unit with the simple phrase, bury the idols. Bury the idols. Take a hard look at your life, root out Take aim at the idolatry. Put a bullseye on it. Whatever you need to do to eradicate these these things from your life, do it. It's worth it. You will not regret it. Bury the idols. Verse 8 is going to be complemented by verse 19. So here I'm doing, again, the same thing that I did earlier. I want to show you the bracketing statements around this this unit of the text. So look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. Okay, so uh, Jacob was born to Isaac and Rebekah. And this woman, Deborah, this is the first time she's mentioned in the text. She has apparently joined Jacob's caravan. She's part of Jacob's traveling party. Uh, It's interesting that we never, I've mentioned this before, we never read of Rebekah's death. We read of her burial later, but we read of Deborah's death here And this could be a a kind of very subtle mosaic critique of Rebekah. In other words, uh, Moses might be recording Deborah's death to remind us of Rebekah and to make us think, oh, we don't read of Rebekah's death. And I think the explanation for that would be because she conspired with her son Jacob to deceive her husband Isaac. That was Rebekah's idea, remember? And so the mention of of Deborah's uh, burial, her death and burial, could be a subtle way of, of critiquing Rebecca for her action at that time. But then look down at verse, verses 19 and 20. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to, her, to this day. Uh, Rachel, you'll remember, was Jacob's beloved wife. He, he married the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And so what you're getting here, bracketing this unit of text, is the death of someone from the previous generation connected to Jacob's mother and then the death of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And um, 
And so this, this unit is about the death of the previous generation giving life to the new. So look with me at verse 9. We read about Deborah's death, and then verse 9 tells us God appeared to Jacob again. Now, what's about to happen here in this decisive chapter in the book of Genesis, and th this, is a, this is a very significant decisive chapter in the book of Genesis. It corresponds in many ways to Genesis 12. Uh, in, in Genesis 36, you're going to get this, all this genealogical information about Esau, and then in chapters 37 through 50, you're going to get the story of Joseph. This is kind of it for Jacob. And in the same way that Abraham's life started with the promises that we're about to read, and then you get Abraham's story in chapters 12 through 22, now we've had Jacob's story, and we're going to end with the promises that we began with in Genesis. So these two, the big story of Abraham in 12 through 22, and the big story of Jacob in like 25 through 36, kind of 35, they correspond to one another, and chapter 35 answers chapter 12. And we're going to read here the very same promises that God made to Abraham. So verse 10, God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And you may be thinking the same thing that my kids were thinking when we read this passage in family devotions this week. And I think it was the youngest who said, he's already renamed him Israel. Why is he doing this again? That's a good question. That's a good, and if you compare the two accounts, earlier the name Israel was about Jacob wrestling with God. But here the focus is on Israel as a nation. And it's almost as though God is saying, okay, look, we've been fighting with one another. You've been fighting with me, and we're done with that period of li your life. We are now going to move into the period of your life that's going to focus on the 12 tribes of Israel and you becoming the holy nation that I'm calling you to be. And so in the middle of verse 10, at the end of verse 10, so he called his name Israel. Verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Where did we read those words earlier in the book of Genesis? You don't have to answer, but I would invite you to think about it. Where's the first time that you read that command, be fruitful and multiply in the book of Genesis? It's Genesis 1.28. God makes man in his image and likeness, and then he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What does this tell us? This tells us that God is carrying forward the project that he began at creation through Jacob. It, and it suggests to us that Jacob is a new Adam which is remarkable, isn't it? Jacob gets to take up the role of the Adamic vice-regent of the living God. This is a sinner saved by grace. This is a sinner. I mean, we've seen, the right? One of, my, uh, one of my kids, I won't tell you which one, this morning we're talking about the fact that we're going to be in Genesis 35, and he says, well, they always just blow it. They just keep blowing it. They, all they do is sin. Well, that's right. They are, they are wretched sinners. But here is this gracious and loving God taking this wretched sinner and saying to him, you represent me. And my cause is going to be accomplished through you. And if you're here this morning and you're not identifying as a Christian, or maybe you do identify as a Christian, but you're not, you know you're not walking with God. You, you know that if, if somebody looked at your life, they would not come away thinking, 
that person is a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Your life is not characterized by careful study of the Scripture, by fervent prayer to the Lord, by being intimately involved in the life of a local church where you're seeking the honor of the living God and seeking to carry out the commission that the, that the Lord Jesus gave to his followers of making disciples of all. You know that all those things don't characterize you. This passage is calling you to bury the idols and to believe the promises and to hear the word of the one who says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, you know, for Jacob... He's an old man, and his beloved wife is about to die in this passage. So the be fruitful and multiply that God speaks to Jacob here probably is going to pertain to his children and their becoming of a great nation. But once we get out of the old covenant into the new covenant, Paul uses this same language in Colossians chapter 1 to speak of the gospel bearing fruit and growing among you. So I, I think there is an aspect, a component of we need to be being fruitful and multiply, but we're all, we're all going to face various ways in which we can't do that. I mean, some people aren't going to ever get married. Some people are going to be barren. Some people are going to get old and pass the years of childbearing. We're still commanded to cause the gospel to bear fruit and grow and to seek to carry out this, this commission that the Lord Jesus of, of making disciples. So God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And if you're identifying with Jacob, I hope you're hearing these words, and I hope you're thinking to yourself about how you can bury these idols and believe these promises. The, the Lord goes on to say here, a nation, and you may remember that in Genesis 12 too, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Same, same terminology. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This is the exact same thing that the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 6. And then he says in verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Did you notice what we just saw? Look back at the words. Where is the word? Somewhere we get the word blessing. Oh, there it is, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he, had come from, when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. There's blessing. And then in verse 11, be fruitful and multiply. And then kings will, there's seed, offspring. And then verse 12, the land. Land, seed, blessing. The very promises to Abraham are now transmitted to Jacob. And don't miss the end of verse 11. Kings shall come from your own body. We're, we're looking for the king from the line of Jacob. And Remarkably, the child to be born in this passage, Benjamin, from his line, the first king of Israel, Saul, will come. But then from another child of Jacob, from Judah, the king will come. So God reiterates to Jacob, in some cases using the very same language, like at the end of verse 12 when he says, uh, I will give the land to your offspring. This is almost exactly the same as Genesis 12, 7, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give the land to your offspring. And then verse 13, then God went up from him. Same language in Genesis 17, 22, after the Lord appears to Abraham. God went up from Abraham. So what's happening in this passage is this, this sinner, Jacob, is being firmly tied to Abraham and Isaac. And, and the promises are 
renewing him. The promises are being passed to him to change his life, to make him a new man. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And you may know from your study of the, of the rest of the Pentateuch that they're going to anoint the tabernacle. So this anointing of this pillar at, at a place called Bethel, it's like it, um, it anticipates the anointing of the dwelling place of God, which is something that's going to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus and anoints him, and he is the fulfillment of the temple, the place where God dwells among his people. Verse 15, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into hard labor, and she had hard labor. The passage that Denny read earlier alludes to this episode as Rachel goes into hard labor, and Rachel, in the midst of childbirth, is going to be weeping over uh, her children as she experiences these birth pangs. And what Jeremiah is doing is Jeremiah is saying the judgment of God upon the, his people as, as Jerusalem is destroyed and as the people are sent into exile, that's like childbirth. It's like birth pangs. Well, why is that? Well, because birth pangs bring new life into the world. And the judgment of God on Jerusalem when the people are exiled is going to bring about new life. And if you listen to the second reading, the one that Amos did, in John 16, Jesus makes the same comparisons with his death. And Jesus says, you're not going to see me and you're going to weep. But then you're going to see me again when he's raised from the dead. And he says, this is going to be like a woman in labor. And, and you're going to have birth pangs, but then you're going to rejoice over the new life that comes on the other side of this. So, so this passage where Rachel dies is, is going, to give, it's going to give way to new life. So verse 17, when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son, which, which very well could be an intentional answer to the naming of Joseph. You remember, Joseph is born, and Rachel's response is, may God grant me another son. And, and this idea of another is bound up in the meaning of the word that's, that's brought into English as Joseph. So, so it's like she's saying, look, the Lord is answering your request for another son. Verse 18, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. You've got a footnote on that phrase, and in the lower margin, it says Ben-Oni could mean son of my sorrow or, or possibly son of my strength, but probably son of my sorrow here. But his father called him Benjamin, and Benjamin means probably son of my right hand. Both names are going to be true, aren't they? As we continue in the book of Genesis, we're going to see that uh, Jacob's beloved son Joseph is going to be sold into slavery, leaving Jacob with, one of, with only one of the two sons of his beloved wife, Rachel. And then he's very reluctant to let the son of his right hand go with those, those nasty brothers that sold the other one into slavery. And so he's both the son of his right hand and 
the son of his sorrow in a way. Verse 19, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. The, the death of Rachel and the death of Deborah, they surround the reiteration of the promise to the rising generation. And, and I think it communicates to us that what we want to do before we die is make sure that those who come after us know the promises. And for them to know the promises, we've got to know the promises. So my application for this little unit is believe the promise. Bury the idols, believe the promises. And you want to believe these promises in such a way that, that you are living like you're dying to live. We want to, we want, look, everybody, unless Christ comes back, we need to be upfront and frank about the reality. Unless Christ comes back before the day comes, everybody in this room is going to die. Everybody in this room is going to be laid in a coffin and put in the ground or some other way of disposing of your remains. We're all going to die and we need to live like it. We need to live like we know it's coming. It, it will change your perspective. It will change your expectations. It will change your agenda. And you need it to. You need to live like you're going to die so that you can live. And that's why we started with the, the call to worship that we had. Where Paul is saying, I, I want to live a life like he lived so I can die a death like he de died. So that by any means possible, I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. We want to live to die to live. So we want to live like we're prepared to die. And we want to live in such a way that we prepare our children to die. They need to know that they're going to die. You need to know that you're going to die. It's true for every one of us. Believe the promise. Believe the promise that promises life beyond death. And that brings us to this final unit. In verses 21 through 29. And I think that you know, I've given you these brackets around the previous two units. I think there's a bracket around this one, too. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll alert you to them when we get to them. So verse 21, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now, let's just get the family arrangements in order, okay? So Jacob first marries Leah, and then Leah is given this woman Zilpah, and Jacob has children by both Leah and Zilpah. Reuben is the firstborn to, to, to Leah. And by being the firstborn of the first wife, Reuben has every right to lay claim to the, the status of, of the firstborn of Jacob. Uh, but then Jacob also marries Leah's sister, which that kind of arrangement is forbidden in, the, in Leviticus, but he marries Rachel, and to Rachel is given this woman Bilhah, and Jacob has children by both of them as well. And Jacob favors Rachel. What is Reuben doing by going and sleeping with Bilhah? Well, the first and most prominent thing he's doing is he is shaming his father. He is shaming his father. 
And, and related to that, he is laying claim to priority in the family structure. This, this is a, all, even in the, elsewhere in the Old Testament, you remember when, when Absalom revolts against David and, and, and uh, Absalom has this very wise counsel, Ahithophel, and what Ahithophel counsels Absalom to do is to go into his father's concubines to show Absalom is the one in charge now. And, and that's the kind of thing that Reuben is doing. Reuben is essentially saying to Jacob, your time is over, and I'm the boss here now. That's what Reuben is essentially saying to Jacob. This is immoral. In the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, it, it is explicitly stated that for a son who does this kind of thing, both the son and the woman are to be put to death. All we read here in verse 22 is, and Israel heard of it, which may remind you of the way that Jacob heard that Dinah had been assaulted, and he didn't do anything, and he doesn't do anything here either. I think this links up with verse 27, and Jacob came to his father Isaac. It's very subtle, but it suggests that Jacob the son who defrauded his father Isaac by deceiving him and stealing his brother's blessing has had a son who has now defrauded him. There, there's a verse in the book of Numbers. I think it's Numbers 32:30, but I might have the reference slightly wrong. But it's got this phrase in there, be sure your sin will find you out. It's a terrifying verse. It's a terrifying verse. Jesus says things like, the measure that, with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. God, God is a God of justice. And look, I think Jacob is redeemed. I think that Jacob is saved. I think that Jacob is with God in heaven now. It didn't deliver him from the consequences of his actions during his life. It's a terrifying reality that we should use in our struggle against sin. We should use this kind of thing against the temptations to iniquity, to sin in our lives. Between these two statements, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob came to his father, you have the first listing of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, the listing is strategically arranged. A moment ago, I told you about Leah being given to Jacob with the woman Zilpah. Well, those two are first and last. And then I told you about Rachel being given to Jacob with the woman Bilhah. Those two are in the middle. And so we first read about Leah, and we're told that the sons of Leah, Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and then Simeon and Levi. And what we now know is about how those three are disqualified. Reuben has been disqualified because he took his father's wife. Simeon and Levi have engaged in wanton and excessive bloodshed. And then that brings us to the third, Judah, whom we'll read about in a couple of chapters, and then Issachar and Zebulun. So there are six sons of Leah, and then the other three women all have two sons. So Leah has six, and then the other three women make up the other six, uh, two each. So verse 24, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Verse 25, the sons of Bilhah, that's, that's Rachel's handmaid. Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. And then verse 26, the sons of Zilpah, that's Leah's handmaid. Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. 
And then verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's a very similar note worded almost exactly the same way back in chapter 25, verse 8. I'm not going to take the time to turn there and look at it, but if you read uh, 25.8 in light of 35.29, you see that the death of Abraham and his burial by Isaac and Ishmael is presented almost exactly the same way that the death of Isaac and his burial by uh, Jacob and Esau is presented here. And again, this relates to the way that Uh, Chapters 12 and 25 and 35 are all placed at a similar point in the narrative. Isaac dies, but Joseph lives. And that means good things in coming days. Deborah and Rachel die, but Judah lives along with the other brothers. And amazing things are in store in coming chapters in the life of Judah. The idols die, but Yahweh lives. And that is the foundation of our hope. The God of the Bible lives. And the God of the Bible is a God who brings life out of death. He causes the barren to give birth, and he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Bury your idols. Believe the promises. And I didn't give you the application for the third unit where Reuben went and lay with his father's woman. Here it is. Be what the Bible calls you to be. Be what the Bible says you are. This Reuben has not done. This, to this point, this Jacob has not done. We have an opportunity before us to live in the way that the scriptures call us to live. Bury the idols, believe the promise, be what God is calling you to be. Let's pray together. Father, by your word, you spoke the world into being. You said, let there be light. And the darkness had to give way. And we pray that you would do the same thing in our hearts, Lord. We pray that in the same way that you appeared to Jacob and made it so that he had to say, put away the foreign idols. We pray, Lord, that you would so reveal yourself to us that we recognize that these things that we have lusted after, these things that we have coveted, these things that we've been greedy for, these things that we've been proud about, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to feel with full assurance and complete conviction that those things are dead and they belong in the ground. And Lord, help us to carry through. Help us to bury those dead idols. And we pray that your word would take root in our hearts such that we would indeed believe that you will bless, that you will give life beyond the grave. And Lord, we pray that it would affect everything that we do, 
every word that we utter, every impulse that we feel, every thought that flits through our ears, Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the power of the living Christ, we ask it. Amen.